17-year-old Stuart Milk had a secret. He was gay, but he didn't know how to tell his friends and family. The college freshman feared his dorm mates would recoil at the news. His family was no more supportive. Ever since Stuart's uncle, Harvey, had come out, the older man's relationship with his family had been strained. Stuart feared that he too would be rejected if his parents and friends knew the truth. One day, Stuart and Harvey shared a three-hour-long conversation at a family gathering. Harvey hinted that he knew about his nephew's sexuality, although Stuart denied it. Then, Harvey assured him that one day, things would get better, so long as he remained his authentic self. Months later, on November 27, 1978, Stuart's world shattered when his uncle was assassinated at San Francisco's City Hall. The country's first openly gay male elected official had been murdered in office. Stuart despaired that the world would never be safe for men like him. As the news covered Harvey's death, they played a clip that Harvey had recorded in anticipation of a possible assassination. He said, I would like to see every gay doctor come out, every gay lawyer, every gay architect to come out, stand up, and let the world know. That would do more to end prejudice overnight than anybody would imagine. Harvey was right. Spurred by his words, Stuart resolved to have the conversation he'd long been dreading. He called together his dorm mates, telling them he had an important revelation. Along with thousands of gay men and women throughout the United States, on November 27, 1978, Stuart Milk came out of the closet. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on the death of San Francisco City Supervisor Harvey Milk. Last week, we told the story of Harvey Milk and Dan White. The city supervisors began their terms as friends, but their relationship worsened over the 11 months they served together. On November 27, 1978, after months of untreated depression and junk food binges, Dan White shot and killed San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Harvey Milk. This week, we'll discuss the aftermath of these murders and their impact on the gay rights movement. We'll also explore Dan White's infamous Twinkie defense, which helped him evade first-degree murder charges. Finally, we'll look at how the world would be different if Harvey Milk had lived. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. On the morning of November 27, 1978, Cleve Jones, aide to San Francisco City Supervisor Harvey Milk, 
arrived at work early, as he usually did. He soon realized he'd left important paperwork at home and rushed off to pick it up. By the time Jones was on his way to work for the second time, rumors were swirling. He overheard someone on the street say that there'd been a shooting at City Hall. Jones hailed a cab and hurried to the scene as quickly as he could. Misinformation spread faster than official statements, and nobody seemed to know what exactly had happened. One radio station announced that Harvey Milk was dead. Another argued that it was Mayor George Moscone who'd been killed. Some said that cult assassins from the People's Temple had attacked. Jones wouldn't learn the real story until he arrived back at City Hall. His heart pounding in his throat, Jones stepped into a city supervisor's office. A crowd had already formed around the body. The rumors were true. Harvey Milk, the first openly gay man ever elected to political office in the United States, had been murdered. The man who killed him, Dan White, escaped City Hall unscathed in the confusion. The 31-year-old never imagined it would be so easy to kill two men and then walk away. Uncertain what to do next, he drove to a fast food restaurant called the Doggy Diner. From a payphone, White called his wife, Mary Ann. When she answered, he said that he needed to see her right away. It was an emergency. Refusing to divulge any more details, White demanded that Mary Ann meet him at a local church. Marianne knew that Dan had been acting strangely for months. She couldn't imagine what this request was about, but she knew it had to be serious. She rushed out of her house just before the local news began broadcasting reports on the deaths of Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk. In a prepared statement, acting Mayor Diane Feinstein said, It is my duty to inform you that both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. Supervisor Dan White is the suspect. Marianne arrived at St. Mary's Cathedral at 11.25 a.m., five minutes after Feinstein's announcement. As soon as White spotted his wife, he blurted, I shot the mayor and Harvey. Marianne was stricken, but she resolved to keep her head on her shoulders. After a brief conversation, the couple agreed that White needed to turn himself in. As they walked to the police station together, Marianne repeatedly reassured her husband that she'd stand by him no matter what happened next. As a former police officer, White had several former colleagues at San Francisco's Northern Station. He trusted they'd treat him well and that they'd protect Marianne's privacy during intake. The officers on duty thought that White seemed calm as he walked into the police station. He didn't act like a man who just committed a double homicide. White still had the murder weapon, a 38 caliber revolver loaded in his hip holster. He pointed at the gun and allowed the police to confiscate it. They also found bullets in his pockets. Once White was disarmed, the officers took him in for questioning. At noon, White began to deliver his 24-minute-long confession, which the police recorded. The friendly officers allowed him to talk, rarely interjecting or pushing him for more information. During his confession, Dan White's strong emotions began to seep through. As he recounted the murders, he said, I never killed anybody before. I never shot anybody. 
I didn't even know if I wanted to kill him. I just shot him. I don't know. While he grew tearful, White described himself as being confused, too overwhelmed with emotions to fully process what he'd done. He talked about feeling a roaring in his ears as he'd shot the mayor. He claimed that he'd only brought his gun to City Hall because he was afraid someone else might attack him. White didn't know where this paranoia had come from. When the questioning concluded, an emotionally wrought Dan White said, I never really intended to hurt anybody. It's just these past several months, it got to the point I couldn't take it and I never wanted the job for ego or, you know, perpetuate myself or anything like that. I was just trying to do a good job for the city. While White tried to set the record straight, the news of what he'd done spread across the country. Joe Campbell had dated Milk for six years when they lived in New York City. He didn't learn the news of Milk's death until he called a cab later that afternoon. The cab driver, making conversation, announced, The mayor and some other guy got shot. He was a supervisor. Campbell pressed for more information and confirmed that the other guy was Harvey Milk. He burst into tears, much to his cab driver's confusion. When the driver asked about his emotional response, Campbell sobbed, that's my lover. Meanwhile, Milk's closest friends and associates gathered in City Hall at 2 p.m. Less than three hours had passed since the double homicides and many were still shaken. Milk's friends knew that shortly after his electoral victory, he'd recorded several audio tapes and requested they be played in the event of his assassination. At the time, they'd dismissed the gesture as a bit of theatricality, but tonight, his colleagues and friends mourned and listened together. After speaking about his hopes for the gay rights movement, Milk concluded one tape saying, I ask for the movement to continue, for the movement to grow, because last week I got the phone call from Altoona, Pennsylvania, and my election gave somebody else, one more person, hope. And after all, that's what this is all about. It's not about personal gain, not about ego, not about power. It's about giving those young people out there in Altoona, Pennsylvania, hope. You gotta give them hope. Hours later, representatives from San Francisco's Board of City Supervisors read a transcription of Milk's statement to the press. Around the country, people in Altoona and every other small town in America heard Milk's emotional pleas to come out of the closet. On November 27, 1978, all over the country, hundreds if not thousands of people publicly told their parents, siblings, co-workers and friends that they were gay, lesbian, bi or queer. Given how personal coming out can be, it's hard to say exactly how many closeted LGBTQ people were spurred by Milk's words. But one of those people was Milk's nephew, Stuart Milk, who gathered his dorm mates at Washington DC's American University to share the truth about his sexual identity. Milk had pled that if he died young, he wanted his death to spur LGBTQ people everywhere to come out. In death, he finally had his wish. Up next, Dan White goes to trial. Now, back to the story. On November 27, 1978, 
former city supervisor Dan White shot and killed his colleagues, Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone. An hour later, he turned himself into the police. The night of Milk's death, his aide, Cleve Jones, planned an impromptu memorial. He worried nobody would turn out on such short notice. In addition, he feared that the public just didn't care about gay men. Milk's violent death seemed like a clear message about the world's attitude toward LGBTQ people. Jones felt his spirits lift when local businesses closed early so employees and customers could attend the memorial. Hastily made signs hung from storefronts and homes honoring the slain leaders. By early evening, 40,000 mourners turned up to honor Harvey Milk. Jones led them in a silent march down Market Street, carrying candles. The somber demonstration ended at the steps of City Hall, where politicians and Milk's friends delivered heartfelt eulogies. After the speeches, each mourner left their lit candles on the steps of City Hall and walked away, wordless. Jones left the march convinced that Milk had been truly beloved and that mourners would peacefully honor him after his death. He'd soon be proven wrong. After the impromptu memorial, Harvey Milk and George Moscone each received a formal service on Wednesday, November 29, 1978. Afterward, Moscone received a Catholic mass at St. Mary's Cathedral and then was laid to rest. Milk's family honored him at San Francisco's Jewish Community Center. There, Milk's estranged brother, Robert, delivered a eulogy. Robert didn't mention that he was grappling with the news that his son, Stuart, had recently come out as gay in honor of his uncle's death. Because Milk had always loved the theater, his friends threw yet another memorial at the San Francisco War Memorial Opera House. In order to honor Milk's boisterous spirit, his friends and ex-boyfriends cracked jokes and interjected politics into their speeches. One speaker, openly gay Reverend Bill Barkas said, tradition would expect me to tell you Harvey's gone to heaven. Harvey was much more interested in going to Washington. Anne Cronenberg, Milk's lesbian campaign manager and aide said, Harvey would prefer often to build new bridges stone by stone. He knew that it was not something that was done overnight, but he knew our time would come and our time is now. City supervisors who attended the Opera House Memorial were scandalized as speaker after speaker delivered political messages. But this was Harvey's party, and it was exactly the kind of get-together he'd have loved. After the service concluded, one speaker encouraged the mourners to gather the flower arrangements and take them home. She said, nothing should be allowed to die here. But Milk was not universally mourned. In fact, Dan White's looming trial divided the city along political and demographic lines. The gay community called for White's head, but the conservative population supported him. He was a former firefighter and police officer, and his previous co-workers stood with their own. Not only did they support an acquittal, but White's allies with the police department did what they could to make his imprisonment as pleasant as possible. Common belief was that the San Francisco Police Department took up a collection and raised $100,000 for White's defense fund. 
However, no official record exists of such a fundraiser. Supposedly, White was permitted to order delivery for his meals rather than eat the prison's offerings. Police officers were frequently spotted in public wearing T-shirts that read, Free Dan White. Police Chief Charles Gaines specifically ordered his force not to feed tensions with the city's LGBTQ community. In defiance, police officers increased patrols through gay neighborhoods like Castro Street. They made numerous arrests on petty charges. Accusations of discriminatory harassment did nothing to change the department's behavior. Because White's case promised to be so politically charged, counsel struggled with their jury selection. The judge forbade attorneys on both sides from asking prospective jurors about their sexual orientations. Instead, prosecution asked, have you ever supported controversial causes? Anyone who indicated they favored gay rights was dismissed. Traditionally, defense lawyers prefer to stack juries with women and liberals as they're generally perceived to be more sympathetic to defendants. But in this case, White's attorneys tried the unusual method of selecting conservative-leaning straight white people, nearly half of whom were men, as they would identify more with Dan White. For reasons that aren't entirely clear, the prosecuting attorney, Tom Norman, only issued six challenges at the jury selection phase. He could have contested 26 times. When the trial began on May 1, 1979, the defense claimed that White was innocent on grounds of diminished capacity. In simple terms, this meant that White lacked the mental facility to be held legally responsible for his actions. White's counsel expanded on the diminished capacity defense during their opening statement, saying, good people, fine people with fine backgrounds simply don't kill people in cold blood. It just doesn't happen. Daniel White was suffering from a mental illness. The prosecution spent only three days on their arguments. In a misstep, the state played the entirety of Dan White's recorded confession from the day of the shootings. White's highly emotional weeping struck pangs of sympathy with the jury. Reportedly, numerous jurors broke into sympathetic tears as they heard White's plaintive words. White's attorneys spent almost a week detailing his descent into depression in the weeks leading up to the assassination. They discussed his worsening marriage and sex life. They also pointed to his eating habits, noting that the normally health-conscious Dan White had taken to binging on Twinkies and Coca-Cola. They even called a psychiatrist to testify to how the increased sugar consumption had diminished White's mental state. While the discussion of White's diet constituted only a small part of the defense's argument, the press seized on it. Soon, White's case was publicly derided as the Twinkie defense. Ultimately, the jurors felt differently from the press. After 36 hours of deliberation, on May 21, 1979, their verdict was ready. One smiling juror, a retired police officer, tapped his knuckles on White's table as he passed on his way to the jury box. When White looked up, startled, the juror gave him a proud smile. Moments later, the foreman delivered his verdict. 32-year-old White was found not guilty of first-degree murder. 
For his two voluntary manslaughter charges, he was sentenced to a total of seven years, eight months in prison. In a later statement to the San Francisco Chronicle, the foreman explained their reasoning. While it was without doubt that Dan White killed Harvey Milk and George Moscone, the prosecution never proved that White's actions were premeditated. Another juror, a conservative Catholic like the defendant, explained their reasoning in a separate statement to the press. They said, the not guilty verdict must be God's will or it would not have turned out this way. The public, especially the gay community, recoiled at the light sentence. The night of May 21st, 1979, the same night White received his verdict, a group of protesters gathered on Castro Street carrying signs that read, if White shouldn't fry, then nobody should. May 21st was one day before what would have been Harvey Milk's 49th birthday. His friends, including his former aide, Cleve Jones, had been planning a birthday celebration. Now, instead, Jones feared that the tensions would erupt into violence. His fears escalated when the spontaneous gathering swelled into the hundreds. In an attempt to control and direct the crowd, Jones led a hopefully peaceful march to City Hall. As they passed through a bar-heavy section of the Castro District, Jones led a chant of, out of the bars and into the streets. The protest was about more than Milk's death and White's acquittal. The verdict sparked a fury within San Francisco's gay community. For decades, they'd been harassed, beaten, arrested without cause, and yes, murdered. But Harvey Milk was a public figure, cut down in broad daylight, while his killer walked away with a slap on the wrist. This was a step too far. Even an LGBTQ-friendly anti-death penalty coalition marched with them, chanting, Avenge Harvey Milk, and All Straight Jury, No Surprise, Dan White Lives and Harvey Milk Dies. 500 protesters had assembled by the time the group reached City Hall, and the crowd grew larger by the second. Soon, it had doubled in size, and then it doubled again. By the end of the night, the throng swelled to 5,000. As the sun began to set, the crowd grew restless. When they weren't able to enter City Hall, they began gathering sticks, garbage can lids, and other implements to try to beat down the doors. When a rock smashed through a City Hall window, the protests erupted into violence. Several leaders tried to calm the mob. Instead, the rioting protesters turned on their leaders and beat them. Police arrived within minutes. The pacifists all sat down to demonstrate that they weren't threats. As the police began to secure City Hall, they beat protesters with billy clubs. But they didn't discriminate between rioters and peaceful protesters. Many of those individuals who sat on the ground refusing to resist were rewarded with vicious blows. Enraged, the rioters only grew more out of control. They smashed police car windows and even lit a fire on the steps of City Hall. When Police Chief Charles Gain learned of the rioting, he debated the appropriate response. He'd been a gay ally ever since Moscone had appointed him and he knew that allowing the force to beat a mob of civilians would be a PR disaster. He ordered the police already at City Hall to hold their ground 
but waited three full hours to send reinforcements to quell the mob. After five hours of rioting, 19 protesters were arrested. 125 people were injured, and the city suffered more than a million dollars in damages. The violent outburst came to be known as the White Knight Riots, and they seemed for a time to quell the immediate outrage over the trial's verdict. That is until 1980, when Dan White's wife, Mary Ann, went to his prison for a conjugal visit. A few months later, she announced that she was pregnant, igniting public sentiment against White once more. Gay activists demanded to know why the murderer was granted perks like conjugal visits. They were given little by way of answers and were forced to stand by as White served his lenient sentence. Then, on January 7, 1984, after serving less than five years in prison, 38-year-old White was released. The terms of his parole required him to relocate to Los Angeles, so for a year, he and his family resided in the San Fernando Valley. The LAPD, concerned that White would be a victim of revenge killing, complained about harboring such a high-profile target in their city. Dan White had lived nearly his entire life in San Francisco. He knew the public loathed him there, but he also hoped that over time, the sentiment would blow over. He wanted his old life back. So in early 1985, he moved to the Excelsior District in San Francisco. But the city wasn't ready to welcome him back. His infamy made it impossible for White to make friends or find a job. His wife, Mary Ann, was forced to support the entire family as a school teacher. This became even more difficult when a third child was born. Then anonymous threatening letters began to appear at the White's house. Dan used pseudonyms and grew a beard so he'd be less recognizable. This didn't ease his paranoia, and soon he never left the house at all. His depression spiraled out of control, even worse than it had in the lead-up to Milk's murder. To make matters worse, White never publicly or privately gave any indication that he felt guilty about his role in the deaths of Harvey Milk and George Moscone. In fact, those closest to him suggested that his greatest struggles were with self-pity at how his life had turned out since the murders. The last time White had faced severe depression, he murdered two men. And once again, in 1985, Dan White was gearing up to do something drastic. Coming up, we'll discuss the death of Dan White. We'll also explore Harvey Milk's legacy and how the world might be different if he hadn't been assassinated. Now, back to the story. By the summer of 1985, nearly seven years after he murdered Harvey Milk and George Moscone, White had accepted that he'd never again be an upstanding member of the San Francisco community. He came from an Irish family, but had never been to the homeland before, and he began to fantasize about relocating. Later that year, 39-year-old White secured a passport and spent several months in Ireland. In Europe, he learned that almost no one had heard of Harvey Milk or the assassination. For the first time in seven years, White was free of his past. He believed he could be happy in a new home country. 
but an international move was expensive, and White barely had the funds to make ends meet. Even his short visit had strained the family's resources. Once he returned to San Francisco, he spiraled again. Shortly thereafter, White invited his brother Tom to live with the family. He certainly could use the company and support, so Tom agreed. White was home alone in the early afternoon of October 21, 1985. He knew that Marianne would be out working all day, and his brother was out of the house and wouldn't come back until 2 in the afternoon. White wrote a letter to his brother and another to his wife and taped both to the windshield of his car. He put his favorite Irish song on the car speakers, rolled up the windows, and connected a garden hose from the exhaust pipe to a cracked open window. With the garage door shut, he started his car. Then he climbed into the driver's seat and took a deep breath. Tom found White dead at 1.52 p.m. He suspected that White planned his suicide to ensure that Marianne wouldn't have to find his body herself. The family planned a small, private burial. While his friends and family mourned, people celebrated on the streets of San Francisco. Diane Feinstein, White's former colleague who took over the mayoral seat of the murdered George Moscone, had long feared that a disgruntled LGBTQ person would murder White in retaliation. When Feinstein learned of White's suicide, she felt an overwhelming sense of relief. It was the least complicated way for White's story to end. The death of Dan White served as an epilogue to the dramatic story of Harvey Milk's life and murder. But even after Milk and his killer were long gone, both men left behind a legacy that shaped San Francisco and the national gay rights movement. The 1978 murder of Harvey Milk and George Moscone came on the heels of the Jonestown Massacre. Less than two weeks before Milk's death, San Francisco-based cult leader Jim Jones led nearly 1,000 of his followers, many of whom were from the city, in a mass murder-suicide. The bizarre deaths, coupled with the murders of Milk and Moscone, left a black mark on San Francisco. For months afterward, the city was derided as a home for freaks and violent criminals. It would take years for the Golden Gate City to recover its reputation. Ironically, as Harvey Milk became a venerated figure in progressive politics, his legacy helped reclaim the city's prestige. Milk was the first openly gay man to win an elected position in United States history. But he was far from being the only LGBTQ politician of his day. Out drag queen Jose Saria had already run a failed city supervisor campaign 16 years before Milk's. And Kathy Kozachenko became the first openly LGBTQ person to ever hold an elected office in 1974 when she won a seat on the Ann Arbor City Council four years before Milk began his term. But after Milk's brief term, more and more LGBTQ leaders made inroads in America's legal system. And Milk demonstrated that a gay man could run a campaign on the issues rather than solely on his sexual orientation. 
His campaign against the homophobic Proposition 6 was a major victory for the gay rights movement. If Harvey Milk had survived to pass more legislation, he could have set the standard for what an out politician can accomplish. Shortly after his election, Harvey Milk dispatched his friend, clothing designer Gilbert Baker, to design an emblem of gay pride. With Milk's encouragement, Baker dyed and stitched together eight vibrant colors to make the first rainbow flag, a symbol still used today to celebrate LGBTQ rights. In death, Milk's ongoing calls to come out helped change the face of gay culture. Instead of gay men and lesbians being expected to keep their relationships secret, more and more people openly lived and loved as themselves. After a wildly successful Gay Freedom Day parade and rally on June 25, 1978, Milk was enthused about his plans for a gay march on Washington, D.C. the following year. Although Milk was killed before he could see the results, his dream came true on October 14, 1979, when as many as 125,000 LGBTQ people marched in the nation's capital to show their support for universal equality, regardless of sexual orientation. The fight for gay rights hit a major roadblock in 1981, when five out gay men in Los Angeles were diagnosed with a mysterious medical condition. Their malady soon came to be known as autoimmune deficiency syndrome, or AIDS. In the early years, nobody understood how AIDS was spread, and panic erupted as the condition became an epidemic. Because AIDS disproportionately struck the gay community, the disease was frequently equated with same-sex attraction. In fact, one early but discarded name for the condition was Gay-Related Immune Deficiency, or GRID. This led to increased stigma around same-sex attraction. By the time the earliest treatments for AIDS were developed in early 1987, around 500,000 people were living with HIV. While scientists scrambled to find an effective treatment for HIV and AIDS, the gay community reeled. Misinformation led much of the public to believe that AIDS could be spread through casual contact. Because so many afflicted were gay, it became common practice to fire or otherwise discriminate against gay men in the name of public safety. It wasn't until the 1990s that the movement was once again able to make inroads in the mainstream. On July 19, 1993, President Bill Clinton passed the Don't Ask, Don't Tell bill, which prevented military officers from asking enlisted men and women about their sexual orientation. At the time, it was considered a great victory for gay men who could still be discharged for their sexuality, but were no longer required to disclose their sexual identity to their superior officers. By 2010, public attitudes toward gay rights had shifted to such a degree that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was considered regressive. It was repealed and replaced with a new ordinance that allowed LGBTQ people to openly serve. In 2005, Milk's home state of California passed a bill to legalize gay marriage. The bill was vetoed that same year, and in 2008, Proposition 8 made same-sex marriage illegal again. 
Cleve Jones, Harvey Milk's former aide, was one of the leaders of the campaign to overturn the proposition. In 2010, the state finally permanently committed to recognizing same-sex marriage. On June 26, 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges legalized gay marriage throughout the United States. Harvey Milk may never have envisioned that four decades after his death, more than 250,000 same-sex couples would be legally and formally wedded in the U.S. alone. Milk's belief that coming out was a powerful political action remains a commonly held belief among LGBTQ rights activists. Openly gay sex columnist Dan Savage said, if more LGBTQ people were out, more straight people would know that they actually know and love sexual minorities, which would lead to less anti-LGBTQ bigotry generally, which would be better for everyone. However, Milk's fight isn't over. In 2014, nearly a fifth of all hate crimes reported to the FBI were committed against LGBTQ individuals. Gay activists continue to carry Harvey Milk's torch as they push back against discrimination and campaign for equal rights. Cleve Jones, the aide who organized Milk's candlelight vigil and inadvertently helped spark the White Knight riots, became an LGBTQ rights activist. He also founded several AIDS activism organizations. Milk's nephew, too, became a political figure. In 2009, Stuart Milk founded the Milk Foundation, an advocacy organization that fights for equality throughout the world. Even Harvey Milk's murderer, Dan White, left a legacy that shaped American politics. After his much-derided Twinkie defense helped acquit him of murder charges, the state of California voted in 1981 to severely limit the usage of diminished capacity defenses. They also required mandatory minimum sentences for all homicide convictions. In death, Harvey Milk was a venerated martyr, a powerful symbol for the gay rights movement. But in life, he was a vibrant force for good. And while his death served as a turning point for many to come out, Harvey's murder triggered the White Knight riots, which helped generate homophobic sentiment. It's hard to say which was a more powerful force for good, Milk the Man or Milk the Symbol. For the final portion of this episode, we'd like to speculate on how the world would be different if Harvey Milk hadn't died in 1978. Perhaps if Dan White had never entered City Hall with a gun, Milk might have had a longer and more successful political career. Without Milk's murder and his posthumous call to come out of the closet, many LGBTQ people might have continued to hide their sexual identity in the 1980s and 1990s. While Milk could have spearheaded a public campaign for gay rights, the movement may have lacked the grassroots support that sprang up after his death. Many of those close to Milk believe that after his tenure as city supervisor, his next step was to run for San Francisco mayor. He'd already successfully served as interim mayor during George Moscone's vacation in April 1978. At the time of his assassination, Harvey Milk's approval rating was high as he rode the success of his Scoop the Poop Act and campaigned triumphantly against the homophobic Briggs Initiative. So long as his ratings didn't take a dramatic plunge later on, 
Milk may well have carried the city to a mayoral victory in future election years. As mayor, Harvey Milk would have been far more visible than he'd already been as a city supervisor. If he'd managed to successfully run for governorship or federal congress, his reach would have been even greater. Harvey Milk served alongside city supervisor Diane Feinstein, who ascended to the mayorship and, as of 2019, serves as a California senator. Perhaps Milk and Feinstein could have been a pair of rising stars, collaborating in the House or Senate through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Perhaps an out gay politician could have turned the tide of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, fighting against taboo in the same way he destigmatized coming out in the 1970s. If the U.S. government had been more aggressive about acknowledging, addressing, and educating about AIDS, hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved. Likewise, an outspoken gay voice in government in the 1990s and 2000s might have helped LGBTQ rights to advance more quickly. Perhaps, as a senator or congressman, Milk could have accelerated the progress toward out-military service or legalized gay adoption and marriage. In the wake of his death, Milk left behind his protege, Cleve Jones, who has spent the past 40 years advocating for LGBTQ rights and equality for all. If Milk had lived longer, he would have continued to nurture and mentor young politically active LGBTQ people. Perhaps, Milk could have shepherded a generation of activists into state and federal government, leading a rainbow wave in the 80s or 90s that would have shaped the face of modern politics. Ultimately, Harvey Milk's life and assassination is a complicated collection of steps forward and backward for the gay rights movement. His untimely death mobilized many to come out, but the subsequent trial and riots also demoralized and demonized many gay activists. If Milk hadn't been assassinated, he would have sacrificed some gains in exchange for a less complicated rise to power. The United States and the gay rights movement would certainly look very different from how they do now. Today, gay activists continue to venerate Harvey Milk for his groundbreaking work. As LGBTQ people advocate for equal rights, they're guided by Milk's words. Burst down those closet doors once and for all and stand up and start to fight. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.